0: Hello, and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Caggy Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt.
1: Everybody needs to have a little flicker of hope in their life that they turn their attention towards, that they build a picture of what it might be like, that they have a plan for it and a belief that they can make it happen because that will help them sustain the waves and the downturn of the tumultuousness over which we have no control.
0: Today's very special episode of Saturn Returns, I am joined by Julia Samuel, who is a psychotherapist and she has spent the last 30 years working with bereaved families. She has worked both in private practice and in the NHS at St Mary's Hospital Paddington where she pioneered the role of maternity and paediatric psychotherapist. A lot of you have requested that I do an episode around grief because I think collectively what we are experiencing right now is a grief. We're experiencing collective grief. Grief doesn't necessarily have to be the death of someone. It can be the death of something, of, of normality, of I don't know, a relationship. There are so many ways we experience grief. And so I wanted to get someone to come on the podcast to talk about that. And I was talking with my mom about it, and she said, You should get Julia Samuel. And I was like, Well, I don't know how I go about that. And anyway, my mum got me her book, This Two Shall Pass, that came out at the beginning of lockdown. And I mean, it couldn't be better timing in terms of releasing a book like this. It's, it's an expression of all that she's learned from listening to hundreds of different people that aims to inform and support and inspire of like stories of loss, essentially. And um, it was actually sitting in my sitting room and my old flatmate came over and she goes, oh, that's my next door neighbor. And I thought, well, that's how I'll get her on. So she very kindly agreed. And we had this wonderful conversation. I learned so much. And I think we made it a especially long episode because of what everyone's experiencing right now. And I know it can be really tough. And I think, you know, we often deny the darker aspects of ourselves and the things that we find painful and, and difficult. And I think Julia sort of faces all of that head on in a really sort of amazing, profound way. And so... I hope you enjoy it. I hope you take something from it. It provides you some comfort if you are going through a difficult period right now, which I know many, many of you are. Well, Julia, welcome to the Saturn Returns podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking to you. (laughs) Very excited to be speaking to you, Keggy. I don't know where
1: we're going to go in the um, atmosphere in this, but it'll um, be interesting <laughs> to find
0: out. <laughs> well, because I'll just say, when I um, wanted to speak to someone specifically about grief... Yeah. ..and my mother, actually, over the summer, when I, I was in the Isle of Wight during lockdown, got me this two shell Pass, and I was reading it, and then I was on the beach one day, and this woman came over to me and she said how are you finding that book? And I was like, I'm really enjoying it, actually. And she was like, I've just read Grief Works. And I was like, oh, have you? And she just stood there for a moment and she said, my husband died a year ago and I found it really helpful So I wanted to know what that was like. And I think because I'd read a bit of it and I was curious, you know, it's not a normal encounter for one to experience. Quite personal. Very personal. Two strangers. Two complete strangers on like a public beach, just standing there. And I said, I was like, how has the last year been for you? And she's like, it's been tremendously difficult. And I was like, have you felt supported by people? And she was a bit, you know, uncomfortable and a bit unsure. But then she was like, well, you know, I've been bought a lot of like lasagnas or whatever, but it doesn't really do the trick. And then she just burst into tears. And I then, I mean, I probably shouldn't have because it was like COVID time, but I just got up and, and I hugged her and we just stood there so nice. for such a long time. And it was just this really beautiful yeah, encounter. It was like two yeah. complete, yeah. yeah. And so it was kind of like brought together by your book. And I was just I like, was wow. True. It's lovely.
1: But it means you can trust your instincts right because that's the instinct that's what people need it's the the single biggest kind of predictor of of your outcome you your grieving is the love and connection to others and so when you have a warmth and a connection with a stranger that's a very special unique thing it's a really lovely thing and i'm very touched That it was around my book.
0: Isn't that nice? It was. And I was like,
1: I have to get her on the
0: podcast. (laughs) And then we were in contact over email and you did say you're like, I don't believe in astrology. And I don't believe in what your guests are talking about. Are you sure you want me? And I thought, (laughs) oh, yes, I am.
1: (laughs) Actually, I don't know that I don't believe in astrology. I'm sceptical. But I also come from a position of I'm open to people's experience and their beliefs. So I, I don't um, naysay other people's views. Mm-hmm. They're just not where I've got to for myself as yet. But who knows? Maybe, maybe you're going to persuade me. Maybe,
0: maybe... <laughs> Maybe you'll be converted by the end of this episode. What was your sort of uh, religious framework growing up? So I was
1: brought up as as a kind of CV. When we were young, we went to church on Sunday at school. um, We had chapel in the morning. And as we got older, we went to church twice a year, Easter and Christmas. So not at all... Mm -hmm religious really. But I love churches. I love, so I married a Jew and I love ritual. But you didn't convert? I didn't convert, no. But I like going to church. I love the music. I love the community. I love the belonging. And similarly, I like going to synagogue. So I love the connection and ritual and the sort of community of people coming together under, in these Mm. cases, the umbrella of religion. Um, And I think it's, Mm -hmm. as human beings, what we need. We need to belong and we need to find our tribe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone is um, much more secular. Very few people go to church. But I think there is much more interest for that reason in spirituality. Exactly. And I think there's something about the safety of institutions that gives us guidance and rules Mm -hmm. that people miss. Mm -hmm. You know, I think all the books that say the 10 rules of life are very popular Because we don't have the Ten Commandments anymore, Mm -hmm.
0: totally, and that's where I think sort of astrology, in a strange way, has has landed and has created quite like you know it's hitting the mainstream in a way because we we still have an appetite for that aspect of ourselves, but religion doesn't serve in the same way that it used to, or we're not serving religion in the same way that we used to. Like I was brought up actually in quite a christian framework you know my mother used to take me to alpha course weekends and stuff like that Did yeah you? so like i mean she was really trying to get us htb yes, exactly yeah. which yeah. if you know but it, it is it's I do. it's quite full yeah. on um in its own way it's sort of like a i don't know it's like guitar playing and very like modern christianity and i remember that like growing up and then of course i had school which was chapel and stuff like that so i'd say my actual Personal belief system is probably still quite rooted in that tradition, but I don't go to church and it's like my own personal relationship with God. However, like this, astrology and everything, I think is something that, and you talk about this a lot in your book, like how we need a balance between structure and chaos. And I think that astrology provides some sort of structure in the cosmos. It's like, well, if that's happening that way, then it's okay. And I kind of see it as like, well, whether you believe in it or not is sort of irrelevant. It's how it serves as a tool for you navigating your way through life in the same way that religion does. So
1: some people say to me, clients, I have... Mars is in alignment or something. <laughs> I don't even know the language. But, you know, they say something like that. And then that I probably
0: know those clients.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then that helps explain to them why they keep missing the train, why they feel scratchy, mm-hmm. or why they feel sexy. Or... So they often use astrology as an explanation for their energy, positive or negative.
0: Do you see that as a bit of a cop-out?
1: No, I think that's what they believe. I, I'm not sitting there then going, la, 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 I'll wait till you finish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I'll come in with what's really true. <laughs> I'm curious that that really helps them understand themselves. And so I go with it completely. Yeah, that it's a tool that works for them.
0: Because I do think that there's a fine balance, isn't there, between using that as like an instrument to help navigate your way through things versus... Um, sort of negating responsibility and being like, well, Mercury's in retrograde, therefore like that's why my life is out of chaos and I have no responsibility in it at all. Yes, and
1: I think that would be unhelpful. Mm. You know, one of the things I say in my book is that everybody has to find their own set of tools, mm-hmm. whatever those tools are, but you have to find things that enable you to, you know, heighten your impulse control, to manage your feelings, to build good relationships, to have enough structure that you get to work on time and you keep your job, you know, to keep yourself navigating through life in the chaos that it's... That it is. ..sort of set that it is, uh, particularly now. The impulse
0: control thing I found quite interesting because even though we're sort of progressive in so many aspects of our lives, that seems to be one that we're almost encouraged to constantly numb. We seem enabled to sit in our own discomfort a lot of the time. And I think one thing that I've observed is like people on obviously pre what's going on now. But when I'd be on the tube and stuff and I'd see and I'd just be watching people and you'd see an emotion come up for them. Something that they didn't particularly like and they'd just grab their phone and it wasn't like a conscious decision. <laughs> it was impulsive. It was just like that's what we are now have essentially like trained ourselves to do. And I thought, oh, dear,
1: it's distraction. <laughs> But when I talk about impulse control, I'm not saying don't
0: feel what you feel. What I'm saying is
1: be aware of what you feel. Let it come through your system. And then don't impulsively jump on the man who's sitting opposite you on (laughs) the tube because you fancy him. But think, (laughs) is this a wise thing to do? Maybe I should Mm. have a drink with him first. So that you have gears in your impulse control. Interesting. So that you have better outcomes. Mm. So, you know, you may be looking at me now saying, oh, she's a pain in the ass. But that isn't going to get you the best podcast, because if you tell me that, I'm probably going to go, well, you bitch, and I'll put the thing down so you won't get a podcast. So you need to let yourself know that you find me really annoying. You don't agree with me and that you have other thoughts too. that. You allow other people's points of view to be on the Mm. podcast, that you are open to learning further things. And so that you stay enough in communication with me that you don't go on your first impulse. Which is what a lot of people do. Which they do. How,
0: How does one create that space
1: in between? It's three things. First of all, it's being aware of what's going on. Often people have a a sort of stab in their stomach or they can feel tightening in their chest or a kind of surge of longing or whatever, the you know, all the different feelings that you have. So you have to have internal awareness of what's going on inside you. Then you need to be able to kind of make sense of that for yourself in your mind, like... I'm feeling scared, I'm feeling excited, I'm feeling curious. So give yourself some understanding of what that energy is. And it might be I'm scared and I'm curious. You know, there are often lots of contradictory feelings going off in the same time. And then breathe and decide, given I feel this, what is the best thing for me? And then maybe the other person or whatever the outcome you want is to do rather than picking up your phone and distracting yourself and then shutting yourself down and not getting your needs met. That's good. And I just want to
0: ask, how did you get into the line of
1: work that you're in now? I actually started when I was about 29, so I've been doing it 30 years. I was chairman of a fundraising arm of a charity called Birthright, which was fundraising research on miscarriage and infertility And one of the trainings that I could find volunteer post for was was bereavement in a local bereavement service. But actually, I think much earlier than that, both my parents had had very significant losses before they were 25. So my mum had her father, her mother, her sister and her brother were all died. She was an orphan by the time she was 25. Oh, wow. And my dad, his father and his brother had died by the time he was 25. And they had never kind of properly grieved those deaths. So there were black and white photographs around the house of people I didn't really even know who they were. I certainly didn't know what they were like. And so I think I was brought up in an atmosphere of the things that you feel and what really matters isn't voice, but you only talk about what doesn't matter. And I think that gave me a curiosity to find out what was going on because that never matched what I saw on people's faces. So I think very early on, I was much more interested in what was going on inside mm-hmm. than what they were saying on the outside.
0: Because you've talked about how you felt like your sort of emotional intelligence wasn't as, as as valued growing up, or perhaps more like as a society, we don't value that sort of intelligence and that you were slightly affected by that for a while. Was that to do with your family? or Was that the school system or...?
1: I think it was society. I mean, you know, we're part of... Uh, Environment and my parents' generation were brought up by parents who'd fought and survived the First World War. They fought in and survived the Second World War, and there was no room for what you felt. There was no room to kind of analyze and express how you feel. You had to survive and get on, have a stiff upper lip and keep going, um, keep calm and carry on. Mm-hmm. And so, the sort of understanding and psychological knowledge um, of therapy has grown inordinately even in the last 10 years. I mean social media has completely transformed people's appetites and also people's engagement with understanding themselves. So would you say that social
0: media has been hugely instrumental in like the progression of this?
1: I think it's been incredibly helpful. My only reservation is that people give themselves diagnosis of feelings when actually what they're feeling is normal. Totally. So maybe they're feeling very worried about something and then they'll give themselves anxiety disorder. Yeah. Or they're feeling very low and they'll say they're depressed.
0: Yeah, labels galore. Like, I guess I'm aware myself, my experiences of mental health are just probably quite normal of, of feeling low. It's not necessarily the most debilitating thing. And there's a whole, there's a whole spectrum of it. And we can all relate on some level to anxiety and and depression. Those are quite like, those aren't a threatening state of being. Whereas I think the less sexy mental health um, illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar, they are quite daunting. Um, And we don't know, we don't understand them. And we don't know how to connect to someone perhaps that's in during like having an episode. And so we kind of like, put that away in a similar way that we often do with grief when someone goes through like the loss of a child or something it's like we can't imagine what that would feel like so we don't go there because not that we don't care but we just don't know how. I don't think it's that you don't care but I think it scares people. Yeah.
1: Because it's so unbearable there's a part of a protection of yourself that you don't want to let yourself know that someone you love can die and you certainly don't want to let yourself know that a child can die that you know that that tears up the rule book of life doesn't it you Mm. never expect a child to die and I mean one of the sections I really like in grief works actually is is at the end which says how friends and family can help yeah and the main message is not to turn away is to do exactly what you did on the beach with that woman which is to turn towards someone and listen to them and say, I'm sorry. I think people get frightened for many reasons. One is they don't know what to say because they think they need to fix it and Mm -hmm. this isn't fixable. I think sitting with someone or standing opposite someone who's distressed, they send off bodily signals of distress into your body and that's quite disturbing. Mm -hmm. And you don't quite know how to sit with them and breathe rather than, it makes you want to fly, puts you into fight or flight. And also, I think it puts us in touch with our own mortality and mortality of the people that we love. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of very understandable reasons why we tend to kind of back off rather than step in. But people need you to meet them where they're at. And if you just let yourself know that by being human as you were and connecting and listening and being kind, that is the world to somebody else you know, letting them tell you about them, their, their husband, their dad, their, their child, is a gift, you know, beyond measure. And um, it's certainly one worth offering, even if it gives you some levels of discomfort listening and being there. We
0: well, discuss a lot about actually the power of just listening and how we, we don't really do that a lot of the time. We're always like preparing for what we're going to say rather than actually just being able to hold space for the other person. I guess that's You know, fundamentally, one of the tools that you use in therapy is just being able to listen. How do you cope with that on a personal level? I mean, just to
1: sort of go one step back, I think one of the downsides of social media, and I'm not at all against social media, is that it's a transmitting, voicing tool, and it isn't a listening tool. Mm. And so people, as you were saying rehearse what they're going to say or they curate what they're going to say yeah and it's all about being heard and I think we really need to tip that balance more back into listening because actually if you listen to someone it changes you on the inside as well it doesn't just support them and allow them to be who they are it allows their words and their feelings and their being to enter your being and affect you and change you and it can expand your being Mm. So for me, I am actually a really good listener. I mean, that would be the one thing I can say that I do. And I can sit there and really pay attention and notice what's going on in the other person. The price I pay on a personal level of working with bereavement and often very traumatic and difficult deaths is that I have so many stories, 30 years worth of stories of terrible deaths that... When I'm with my own family, I'm with my grandchildren or my pregnant children or whatever. You know, eating a grape, I've worked with three or four families where the child's choked on a grape, drowned in a bath, you know, died on a bicycle. So all the ordinary things of life, I've seen the extreme end. They're like 0.5%. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> with, with my children and my grandchildren, I'm much more anxious so I literally cut their grapes up into like 15 pieces. And Sophie, one of my daughters, she was laughing at me yesterday. It's like, mom. <laughs> or, you know, when they're on, a, on their scooters or bikes before they get to the edge of the road, I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I transmit those stories. Interesting. Um, into my family, which is unhelpful. Maybe it'll keep them safe so they won't get run over or drown or choke, but also... But is that exhausting for you? It's not exhausting, no. It's annoying for my children. Mm. They're very sweet about it. They laugh at me,
0: basically. I was going to ask, is there anything that scares you? sounds like you're fearful of everything because of it. Well, I mean, so I'm not frightened of
1: my own death, and I've done an ethical will. I've done my advanced care planning. I've done my living will. But I'm frightened of people I love dying because I Mm -hmm. know they can die in a way that most people don't know. So most of us go around believing, rightly, that the night will end as the morning did with everybody that you love being alive. Um, I see that in a moment, out of a clear blue sky, you know, an eight-year-old can be healthy at school and be dead by two in the afternoon. So I can't not know that. But, you know, I, I do tons of stuff that keep me balanced. And and I think the benefit from it is that at the end of every day when everyone's alive, I'm incredibly grateful. I feel so lucky. What I was going to say, it must give you a huge amount of gratitude for yeah. life. Preciousness. I mean, sometimes I'm a spoiled old bag and put all of that out the window and have a tantrum about things that don't matter. But well, you're only human. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of the time... I feel very grateful when everyone's breathing in and
0: out. Yeah. I asked um, some people on social media if they had any questions or thoughts around, around this. But someone wrote, does it ever really end? And that, no. kind, yeah, that kind of hit me. <laughs> no. So, I
1: mean, we're not machines. So the
0: intensity over time
1: definitely changes. hmm So that what we talk about now is that you accommodate the loss, that it becomes part of you, and you build your life around it. The biggest thing in grieving is daring to trust again, daring to live and love again when you've had your heart broken. It's really hard to dare that life isn't going to do this to me again. And to also give yourself permission, because the pain keeps you close to the person that's died. So there's a wrestle about, I need to show them that I love them, so I must suffer. You know, there's a, there's masses of dimensions to it. Mm-hmm. But over time, with the right support to themselves and self-compassion and, and everything, people do learn to dare to live again and love again. And some people even have what's called post-traumatic growth, that they feel like they've grown from the experience. Not that they, it ever diminishes the level of the loss or the pain, but it's changed their perspective of life, it's changed them to the extent that they actually feel bigger and stronger as a result. But we, you know, when the the person dies, the relationship doesn't end, the love never dies. So loving them carries on with you and they're in you or in heaven or whatever your belief system is till you die. Mm -hmm. And so you can hear a song 30 years later that will feel like yesterday that the person died. If it was a song played at the funeral, say, or their favorite song. So it's there to be recalled, but it doesn't diminish your life. You grow with it through your life if you allow yourself to feel the pain and grief. Mm.
0: And a lot of people sent through the sort of um, irrational fear of people dying, even though there's nothing wrong. It's called like thanaphobia or something, they say. Thanaphobia,
1: could be death phobia, yeah.
0: yeah. Cause, I mean, it sounds like you, in a, in a way, but probably more warranted, have a little bit of that. I think
1: phobia is your own death, fear of your own death. Right. Well, I have seen a few people who are frightened of death and dying. You'd want to find out what the touchstone memory of that was. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd get them to think of the feeling in their body and then float back until the time they can remember feeling that feeling in their body, the fear in their body and then try and ground it in an experience that they had, and then we'd work with that experience. You know, people talk about the body remembers, the body holds the score, and that your response is hardwired, if it's a traumatic memory, to put you into fight or flight or freeze quicker than you have time to cognate, to think about what's likely or more realistic. Then we process that, and they prob- that probably clears it through their system. Actually,
0: the the body keeps the score. Um, that I find has been incredibly useful to me, and I think that we do we store everything in our body, and and things get trapped. And I I believe that that's how you know it can manifest into illness and disease and all these sorts of things, and we don't acknowledge that very much.
1: Well, we know that it affects our immune system. That when you have a lot of cortisol in your body, which is the fight or flight or freeze Mm -hmm. hormone, and that your system stays on alert and doesn't wind down. You don't have so much oxytocin, which is the reverse. It kind of helps wind down and connect you. That when you're on alert all the time, you are less able to receive the connection to other people. So you're less relational. Interesting. So that feeds a loop, but also it lowers your immune system. Mm. And so from that, you get quite a lot of illnesses. Mm. Um, Bessel van der Kock and Antonio Damasio are the two neuroscientists that talk about the body score. Well, the school.
0: Well, I was um, listening to something about the mind-body connection. And I, I tend not to want to talk about like coronavirus on this, but because I've got a couple of friends and you know, people in my family that I are experiencing like physical manifestations of of a mental anxiety basically I wanted to get your advice for people listening on what ways they can address that because we are you know I mean your book I, I feel like you must have had like a prophet come to you when you've like there's going to be a pandemic can you write this book for everyone you were like came out March the 5th <laughs> it's insane stories of crisis change <laughs> and
1: hopeful beginnings I mean who bloody knew me? I
0: literally was reading it. I was like, she must have known. <laughs> she didn't. She did not have a clue. I mean, the timing couldn't be better. And I like highly recommend everyone to read it because it, I think pre this time, we weren't very good at negotiating with change, you know, or we try and negotiate with change. That's why I wrote the book. Exactly. But now we're in a time where everything has changed so much. Our future feels so unpredictable. And it's that you say about the paradox of like, Once we accept the sort of unacceptable, we can then change. That's it. Very well said. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to add anything. I
1: think when we try and wrestle control over things that we fundamentally have no control of, we become more and more brittle, angrier and more powerless. Mm. So certainly the pandemic has turned the volume up on uncertainty in, you know, a massive way. But the truth is, we have never had control over the things that matter to us most, whether we live or die or what people feel about us and whether they love us. We profoundly influence, but fundamentally, we have no control. And all of life transitions like ageing and, you know, the minute you have a child, you have to begin to let that child go from out in your womb, to weaning, to toddling away from you, to going to school, to eventually leaving home and setting up their own home. So loss is always the other side of love and life. And I think we try and ignore the fact that it's loss and we project it onto other things. And I and I do think smartphones and digital technology give us a sort of false sense of our own agency and our control. The fact that we can a plane ticket, not that we're going anywhere or food or whatever it is within seconds gives us a sense of power that over the very big things that matter to us most, we have no power and so for the the pandemic, I think first of all, you have to kind of have the serenity player of accept the things that you cannot change, change the things you can, and really have a look have the wisdom to know the difference between the two, so put your energy in the places that you can have outcomes, not your energy in places where you have absolutely no influence whatsoever. So I would always say, you know, news feeds are contagious. They absolutely Mm -hmm. spread the virus psychologically Mm -hmm. in the most horrible way. So maybe if you have to know the news, look at it once a day, but don't keep kind of going on your feed. And then, you know, for each day, try and have a kind of mixture of having the best day that you can have and keep it in the day. Don't project very far into the future. Yeah. And that, I would say, would be true for anyone that I see that's grieving or longing for something, is that if you keep your skylines short, you open yourself up to much less fear because often what we imagine is limitless and we can create nightmarish videos in our mind of what potential miseries we can face. Yeah. But if you keep it into today or the next few days you know bite-sized chunks then we can bear that you know like for aa that you just don't drink for today but if you think i'm never going to drink again in my whole life it just doesn't seem Mm -hmm. achievable Mm -hmm. and have some structure i always i mean i bang on about it in both my books is exercise because that lowers your fear levels and your stress levels interesting makes you feel better so something that gets your heart rate up and it doesn't have to be kind of cycling 20 miles you can do 12 minutes five minutes I think going outside is much better if you're allowed physically to go outside, that being outside is better, being in nature is even better. So if you live in a city, go to a park. You know, how you have your mornings will influence your whole day. Yeah, morning routine. Morning routine. So, I mean, mine is I get up, I exercise, I do a five-minute breathing, I do some stretches and I eat my brekkie, and I do that every single day. Different exercise every day,
0: and I've done that for like 30 years. I'm such a big believer in that. Yeah. It really does. And I think people do have a tendency to sort of check their phone and go on Instagram. And we we, we bombard ourselves with so much useless information that by the time it's like 7.30, we hate our lives. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, You're looking I at Kim Kardashian miserable. and her massive palace,
1: <laughs> having her gilded life. Or I, I doubt she does. Nobody ever does, really. But, you know, you can make yourself misery by comparing. Yeah, Comparison's the death of happiness. My phone doesn't turn on. It goes off at 8.30 at night
0: and comes on at 8 in the morning. That's good. That's very good. I've just started deleting certain apps off my phone until someone tells me that I need to do something on it. Oh, cool. If it's not there as an option, I just replaced it with a chess app. Because I was like, if, if I like have that need, you know, I'm like, well, you can play chess instead. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's a healthier alternative because we have to, you know, regulate ourselves. And like everything you've just said about we need to create that infrastructure if it isn't there externally so much and just making like your day manageable and goals that are achievable that give you a sense of accomplishment rather than thinking too far into into an unpredictable future, which was always unpredictable. Like you say, it just feels far more doom and gloom because of the news and because of the pandemic. Exactly. I
1: do think. I mean, for those that are lucky enough to still have their job, and I hope as many people as possible keep their job. I think working from home is so shit. Mm. You know, trying to maintain boundaries between work and home. Mm. Those that with families and when they were homeschooling, we need transitions. I mean, a lot of this too shall pass is about recognizing transitions, allowing transitions, going from one place to another, allowing space between places. You know, what the Gestalt term, the fertile void. You know, not switching yourself like a machine. And we need it in our day and we need it in our attitudes and we need it in our behaviours so that we have a break from being one version of ourselves to step into another version of ourselves. And I think one of the reasons people feel so depleted, not only is because they're on Zoom all day, but because the boundaries between work and home, their work, self, their relationships, their work have been
0: completely... Dismantled. um, ..blown apart, yeah. Because you... You're a twin, aren't you? Yes. So you you speak a lot about finding, you know, you're most comfortable around other people and you connect that perhaps to the fact that you've actually never not been, even in the womb you were... In Mm utero, yeah. Which I found really interesting because I'm someone that's actually... I I like my solitude a lot. Do you? Yeah. 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 That's where I, you know, get filled up is by being alone. I need a lot of alone time. But I can feel myself during this time slipping into an old pattern of like isolation, basically. And like you say, we need the contrast. We can't just like stay in solitude. And then I'm like, well, that's the kind of person I am. So that will be fine forever. It's like, I have to know that I've also got, yeah. I've also got to like do things that are good for my mental health. And that for me means going out and spending time with people and having human connection and everything like that. I I imagine
1: you're an introvert and so you need alone time to recover rather than extrovert or a version of that on the spectrum yeah but for Saturn Return tell me what got you into it and what roots you to it and why it still influences you and inspires you and
0: when I was um in my early 20s I was pretty reckless and ungrounded and imbalanced and I was just yo-yoing from one extreme to the other I was You know, I used to drink a huge amount. I never knew when to, like, end a party. I found it very hard to just focus on things. And I had really no fixed sense of self. And then I guess it started a bit at 27. And I went through this period where I was like, I know that that's not who I am anymore or who I want to be. But there was a sort of social exile that I felt perhaps I inflicted upon myself, but that I experienced during those years. And you say that, I think, a fertile... Void. Void. That kind of resonated for me as like a a couple of years of of that because it gave me the space to really be like, okay, who am I at my core, but also who do I want to be going forward? Mm -hmm. And neither of those things were like the way I was behaving before. And that is known as your Saturn return. And I can't remember who first told me about it, but I was living in LA, so probably someone from LA. And I just remember thinking, ah, that's interesting because this has felt very isolating and personal and, like, I'm the only... Like, everyone else has it all figured out. Everyone was sent the handbook of life. Everyone sorted. Yeah, yeah. and I, mine got lost in the mail. But then I realised that actually probably a lot of people might feel that way if I do. So, Most people. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And also with social media and everything, it's this thing of presenting like the perfect version of yourself that we all fall into believing and then comparing ourselves to and thinking, well, we've just got it wrong, but there's this massive disconnect. And so I just became quite passionate about this idea that you know, there's also humor in sharing these experiences, which I think is such a a key ingredient, like a happy life is to be able to look at things with humour and to mm. and to laugh at ourselves and laugh at each other, mm. even Definitely. in like life's most difficult moments sometimes. Dark exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I guess I had to establish enough of a sense of self to do it. And I had to go through certain experiences that were painful for me. But they were all necessary things. And I think a really key component was as they happened the shift between coming from a place of thinking I was a victim of life to moving out of that headspace. And, even, and I was like... Being the agent in your life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. A little bit. That you came to it through your own
1: experience, that you needed to change, but you needed to find your own map inside yourself. And this was a map that aligned with who you find yourself to be. And it ignited imagination and purpose and a way of thinking that gave you an understanding of yourself and an energy about living that you didn't have before
0: exactly because like I said a lot of people sent in um messages about you know grieving your former self and Mm. it's a I can definitely relate to that and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it because you do touch on that in the book
1: those versions of yourself I mean I call it a living loss So it may be if you were married and now you're divorced or you're a teenager and now you're stepping into adulthood or you had a job and you've lost your job. So a lot of that is tied up in your identity. You know, I'm a solicitor or I'm a wife or I'm a husband or I'm a mother or I'm a teenager. And in order to develop and grow, we need to allow the sort of earlier versions of ourselves to fall off us, you know, like a, a, a snake loses its skin. But it isn't that they rip off us, it's that the things that we do to block the change are the things that do us harm over time. So it's like you allowing the organic and natural process of change to evolve and adapt us and change us given our new circumstances. And I don't think you ever lose sight of who you were before. I think you carry those earlier versions of yourself inside you and you can access them and they can give you information or wisdom or kind of thought. So you don't cut and move on. You evolve and adapt and change and grow through, but always with the roots of your past influencing
0: you. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And you talked about it with Elizabeth there a little bit, this strange thing when we grieve a future not yet realised, whether that's because we've fallen pregnant and then suffered a miscarriage or whether a relationship has ended unpredictably and we don't know how to feel about you it. grieve the
1: dream and the hope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the moment you're pregnant, your picture of your future changes at that moment. You don't just see a blue line. You see yourself as a parent. You see... The baby seat in the back of the car, you see yourself walking down the street pushing a pram. So the picture of your future is video-like in front of you when you see the blue line and it gives you, if it's a pregnancy that you really want, excitement and hope. And so when the baby dies, whatever, gestation, you grieve the loss of the future that you had every right to expect and you hope for. And that is a real grief, but it's an invisible grief. I mean, all grief is invisible. Yeah. But some losses are much more acknowledged and allowed than others. And I think, thanks to people like Elizabeth Day, miscarriage and baby loss is more in our understanding now. But I think we still find it... People sort of think, how can you miss what you never knew? But you can.
0: You really can. And that's justified. It's a justified yeah. experience. I wanted to ask you a bit about... like, If you don't want to talk about it, it's fine, but when Princess... Diana died because she was a very close friend of yours. And you said about how there was a feeling that you felt when everyone was grieving it, that you felt um, annoyed a bit about that because they didn't know her. And like grief, it is such a a personal thing that we do sometimes take, um, it's like ours. Do you know what I mean? And I had an experience when I was younger, when a friend died, when. I was 15, a very close friend, and I just remember like not wanting to share my grief with people. It was almost like I was territorial over it. I was like, this is mine and you don't understand what this feels like. Even if someone was experiencing their own fashion, I got very protective over it. And I think when you, you obviously experienced that on a huge scale because everyone was mourning Diana. Could you talk a little bit about that if you feel comfortable with it?
1: Grief is both, incredibly personal and unique and very universal. Mm -hmm. And so what I felt subjectively isn't correct objectively because, of course, everybody has a right to grieve Mm -hmm. someone they knew or they felt they knew. And I think, like with your experience, um, when someone close to you died, people are very different. Sometimes people want to hold on to the pain because it keeps them close to the person that died and the feel of talking about it or sharing it with lots of people will somehow dilute it, Mm -hmm. and that they will then take ownership of it. And also you can get competitive mourning that, you know, amongst a friendship group or within a family, when someone dies, there can be a a, a competition of who is closest. You know, if it's children of a dad died, my dad loved me best. I was his favourite child, so I miss him most. Mm -hmm. And within a friendship group, some people don't give themselves licence to grieve, because they feel like I'm only a friend. It must be much worse for the husband or worse for the parents or people who are closer. And so I think my understanding in reality is that we need to let ourselves grieve and feel the way that we do, however that is, and that there isn't an order of what's worse or better. And that there's space for everybody is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. A simple measure of a loss, and obviously things can be very complicated, is the, is, the, is the extent of the love. So the more you loved someone and the more significant they were in your life or that the loss is in your life. If your job is everything in your life and you lose your job, that would be a very significant
0: loss. Mm. And that's one of the unfair paradoxes of life, isn't it? Yeah. It's the risk that we have to take, you know, how willing are we to love that deeply means... How willing are we to get our heart broken?
1: Loving is a risky business. You know, being able to love, to give love and receive love is fundamentally the measure... If When you look at people, who when they look back on their lives, those that have loved and been loved um, were happier, they live longer, they're healthier, they're wealthier, they have less physical pain and less psychological pain. So love is our best medicine it's the strongest most powerful thing we have and of
0: course it's a very risky business that's actually something that I mean I'm I'm just fascinated by relationships are you in relationship um kind of yeah sort of (laughs) what answer is that
1: if I was your kind of kind of girlfriend or boyfriend, whichever you're...
0: I'd be like, what? (laughs) Well, to be fair, it's just that I've gone bright red. It's very new. But, yeah, I am. I am in a relationship. So now there are all
1: these gates, dating... Well, this is the
0: thing, it's like... Exclusive,
1: boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend.
0: Yeah, there are all these labels to it.
1: Which bit are you? Are you dating exclusive?
0: We're in a relationship. We refer to what we're experiencing as a relationship, but yet I wouldn't necessarily... I feel it's a bit premature to refer to each other as boyfriend and girlfriend. And actually, I don't know whether I really um, resonate with that labelling anyway anymore. People don't like labels, do
1: they? I, I mean, I, they're completely new to me. I have no, I mean, <laughs> it, in my day, you were either a girlfriend or boyfriend or you weren't. And there
0: weren't so nearly so many rules. I know. We've just become, we've got so many choices. We've become so. That's actually such, So I want to go into like that with you in terms of. Relationships, because you do sort of say that, you know, how we're able to love and be loved is defines, in a sense, the quality of our life. And we are living in a time where there's just an abundance of option and choice and how, you know, that influences how we go into relationship and whether actually the framework of marriage and stuff is sustainable because of the way we are living.
1: So my fundamental belief is that... The love relationship that we have, and I mean in love, not friendships, is the measure of the quality of our life. And so that it's down to us individually and in the couple that we're in to make that work. Because there are so many options now and so many choices and you can have multiple relationships, gender fluidity, sexual fluidity, relationship fluidity. I think in some ways, People get overwhelmed by how many choices they have and they get very confused. So it's much harder to commit.
0: Mm.
1: You know, I'm a woman of my generation. So there was never a dating app. I've been married for 40 years. I married when I was 20. So I'm very biased by my own experience. Which is amazing. Mm.
0: Well, you, your experience is still what people aspire to have. And you say how you, you've had sort of five marriages within your marriage, which I think is really interesting because I think a lot of people just get to like one hurdle and they're like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Where's marriage number two? And in the structure of like marriage being based off people's ex- life expectancy being a lot longer, you know, now. So it's like, well, you should probably... You should add another marriage in. I mean, I, I really think that there
1: isn't a worse or better. So somebody else who's my age, who's maybe on their third marriage and had three really good relationships and three very good quality of life in those relationships and it's worked for them, I absolutely respect and value that. I think, you know, research shows the outcomes for divorced children. Divorced children always suffer. So I, don't, I really don't have a judgment about it. And there was a story in my book of a woman who had a husband and two lovers. And she was an amazing woman, and Maria. And, you know, I really didn't judge her at all. And I loved the way she experimented with herself and with sex and love and well into her sort of 50s. And I thought that was fantastic. So I think we have to find our own way. But if, you again, you look at the research... Going into a relationship, it isn't that you find your soulmate. It's that two people could commit to work together to make the relationship work. And the sort of overarching mm-hmm. question is, are we a good fit? You know, are we nice to each other? Do we have the same beliefs? Do we work well with difficulty? Do we overcome difficulty together? Do we just support each other in the bad times? Do we have the same values? Do we want the same things in life so those are the things rather than fantastic sex and multi-orgasms that are probably
0: <laughs> which, is great. which is great if you have
1: all of that then go for it babes
0: um, <laughs> but it's not something to be, i think mark like historically i've always based relationship off that primal animalistic first thing and then I'm like oh this is my partner for life and then you know I don't actually really know them very well and then six months later. And that's so
1: fun though. It's that's fun. so fun. It is fun. And you have to do that I mean that's amazing but it isn't the thing that you should measure whether this is my life partner. No. And I, I actually don't think there will be life partners in not? the same way. I mean there are less divorces now because there are less marriages. Interesting. So before, in my generation, it was like you were educated, you employed, you retired, and you probably had two or three bosses through your lifetime. And now I think we have these multifactorial lives, lots of jobs, lots of roles, and maybe multiple
0: relationships through our lives. Do you think monogamy then is a not sustainable or realistic thing today? I think it's much
1: harder. I really do. I mean, if I was a young person now, if I was 25 and looking that I'm likely to live until I'm 88, which if you're 25, you are, would you get married and think you can only have sex with that one person for those, that amount of time? It's a big ask. But it's a beautiful ask. But if you look into the future, it's like, oh, my God. So, but I, I mean, it has worked for me. I've been very lucky. I really love my husband. I love him more now probably than I did 40 years ago. I mean, there are times I've wanted to run him over and (laughs) really hate him. But I've never wanted not to go to bed with him or not to wake up with him. And I love, you know, I love being with him. So I'm very lucky.
0: I think that's so lovely. You also touched on how women, if you were born after the 1990s... 80s. More sexual or... more
1: Women are more sexually... But since women went into the
0: workplace...
1: So now... Women work as much as men. They have more part-time jobs and they aren't paid as much as men. But they are out in the workplace as much as men. So 50% of the working population is women.
0: And do you think that correlates to one's sexuality?
1: It's correlated to their infidelity. This is so fascinating. So since women have left the home, Mm. they've been much more unfaithful because they've had much more opportunity, much
0: more freedom and more money. Yeah, would you say that, because obviously the... People think that men cheat and women don't, and that's based off a biological thing that that's just the way we are. But would you say it's actually more a societal thing of the structure of actually, well, it's a culture. Culture that women didn't have the option because they, their security was an you know extension of the man's working life.
1: And now women have freedom. There's no question. Women's libido is as strong as men's, and they have as much erotic energy and seeking excitement as men do. there's absolutely no question about that
0: mm. is there anything else you'd like to share in terms of for people navigating the seas of change right now especially
1: I was talking to um Esther Perel last week who and, is amazing um, who is amazing she is amazing I was very lucky to be talking to her and i was talking about hope that you know we need hope is the alchemy that turns a life around but that people want certainty over hope and then i said where certainty ends hope begins and she kind of stopped me in that moment and i think that is right that people want certainty right now and that is a false wish we can't have certainty so where certainty ends hope begins but we do need hope everybody needs to have a little flicker of hope in their life that they turn their attention towards, that they build a picture of what it might be like, that they have a plan for it and a belief that they can make it happen because that will help them sustain the waves and the downturn of the tumultuousness over which we have no control.
0: Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Julia, for coming on the podcast. I've loved speaking to you. I've loved speaking to you,
1: Kenny. We didn't talk enough about the moon and stuff.
0: <laughs> well, I sense we were gonna go there, then I was like, that's not. I mean we can if you'd like. <laughs> that's fine. We've done that.
1: But it was it was really fun. Lovely meeting you.
0: You can find Julia Samuel at Julia Samuel M B E and me at Kaggy's World. Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Deborah Dudgeon and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. And remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.